and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? And greetings, dear listeners, you lovely people. I am sorry to tell you that you are without Jonah Goldberg. I am sorry to say, but you are with me, his audio doppelganger, Chris Steyerwalt. And I am so pleased to be with you today. Um, And because Jonah is on vacation, if Jonah were off doing some hardship duty or doing uh, doing something difficult or or strenuous, I, I would feel obliged to do something that he might do. And it's not to say that he wouldn't do this subject, but it is to say this is exactly what I want to talk about. And since I'm filling in for a friend who's on vacation, I feel I feel that I'm empowered to talk about whatever I want to talk about in the whole world. And what I want to talk about today and what I want to talk about this week, and I wrote about it for my column for the dispatch on Monday, uh, in which I used uh Vietnamese Cajun crawfish cookery of the Gulf Coast of Texas as a metaphor for what is happening culturally, demographically, and politically in America uh, as we make up new ways to be. And I thought, well, who could I talk to about a topic like this? And I said, well, the very best person would be Richard Alba. If you could get Richard Alba, this would be the very best person that you could talk about something like this with. But there's no way we can book Richard Alba on such short notice. And yet, here we are. I want you people to meet Richard Alba, who is a sociologist, a distinguished professor emeritus at the City University of New York's Graduate Center. Uh, When I say um, that his most recent book, uh, The Great Demographic Illusion, Majority, Minority, and the Expanding American Mainstream, uh, is required reading, essential reading for anybody who wants to understand what's happening in American culture and political life today. I'm not kidding. Uh, and the other thing that I can say about Professor Alba is that he is humane. And I mean that in every sense. His writing is humane and accessible. His understanding of human nature uh, is loving and useful. And it's just such a treat, Professor, to have you with me today. Thank you for joining. Well, I'm very glad to be here, Chris. And thank you very much for that, you know, very generous uh, introduction. Um, But let's start talking about the expanding mainstream, because that's really what you were referring to with your uh, Vietnamese crawfish cookery in on the Texas Gulf Coast. So um, I think that's one of the really important phenomena that we can see going on today. And I'm going to um, make reference to some really interesting data on popular culture that have been assembled by the UCLA sociologist Darnell Hunt um, and his colleagues. And they've really done... Uh, tremendous work in very systematically tracking um, the workers, the actors, the directors, the writers, um, both in Hollywood producing, making films, but also making television. And they've done this for 10 years. And uh, to be honest to what they think, you know, they, they emphasize that parody hasn't been attained. Um, that there's still in important sectors underrepresentation of uh, people of color. And I'm not going to dispute that. That's right. But, but what their data show is a remarkable 
absolutely remarkable transformation of these cultural workforces over the last 10 years. For they, they start in 2011. So, for wait, example, wait, wait. Before, before, before you tell us where we are, you have to remember, uh, we don't know where we were. So if you will come with me only briefly, I, I want to take you to uh, at, at about this time in 1983. The New York Times wrote the following, Beyond the Melting Pot. Moynihan and Glazer feel vindicated. And the Moynihan, of course, uh, was by then Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York and Nat Nat Glazer, the sociologist. And here is what uh, uh, the authors of what I think was probably the dominant book on this kind of stuff for 20 years or more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's what here's what Daniel Patrick Moynihan said. Empirical evidence has come along that proves us right. He and his co as he and his co-author relaxed in his Senate office. In the nineteen eighty census, for the first time, they asked people what ancestral group they came from. Eighty-three percent of persons interviewed identified with at least one ancestry group. Only six percent claimed their ancestry was American. He cited the census data from Tennessee as further proof their nineteen sixty-three hypothesis. Quote People there still think of themselves as English, Irish, or Scottish, and they've been in those hills for centuries. Now, he's talking about my relatives there, but that's fine. Uh, So here's what you said in your book, your 2020 book, The Great Demographic Illusion. Just as the white Protestant mainstream that prevailed from colonial times to the middle of the 20th century evolved through the mass assimilation of Catholic and Jewish ethnics after World War II, the racially defined mainstream of today is changing at least in some parts of the country, as a result of the inclusion of many non-white and mixed Americans. My read on this as a total layperson and who only uses this stuff for the purposes of political prognostication and understanding politics is that the conventional wisdom hardened in the second half of the 20th century, that these unmeltables, quote unquote unmeltables, that uh, the idea of assimilation had gone by the boards and that America was sort of balkanizing and that there was not going to be a common American culture anymore. And then you come along and say, not so fast. Is that right? Well, that is right. And uh, so now I've got to go back because <laughs> we've got to retrace our steps. Okay. Yeah. So the data that they were referring to certainly showed that um, many white Americans know where their ancestors come from. That does not mean that they have ethnic identities that commit them to anything very substantial in their everyday lives. And so, you know, I think there's a kind of a, and and this is an important point to fix on because we have to readjust our, our ideas about assimilation. So a lot of people think, including social scientists, think that assimilation means in some sense, the eradication of uh, ethnic origins for those who are not uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And um, what we can see, and Glazer and Moynihan paved the way to help us see that, is that did not happen. That's not what assimilation means. I think actually most social scientists today would agree that the groups that they were referring to in that column, in fact, have assimilated. Um, But what does assimilation mean? Well, if we look at that experience, it's my experience. And so I think, you know, I have some insights that in a way come from kind of my personal perceptions or personal perceptions about myself, but I also see it in data and many other people's lives. What it means is that 
people adjusted their ethnicity. They modified it. They muted it. They, yes, it's still there. It comes out in maybe in some kinds of rituals that they may celebrate and some interests that they may have, or maybe it doesn't come out at all, except that they remember that they had immigrant ancestors who came from a certain place. Um, but they, they are in a social world where they are able to interact with, to get along with, even to marry people who have very different uh, ethnic origins. That's what assimilation meant in the late 20th century. And the argument that I'm making is that assimilation still means something like that. It means joining the, the American mainstream, a mainstream where people's ethno-racial origins, while not ignored, not unknown, really don't affect their lives very strongly. And sort of they're able to um, be in a social world where they can interact fairly easily with people who come from very different backgrounds uh, than themselves. And that's what I see happening. When I tell my, when I tell my kids uh, that my parents, when they married in the mid-1950s, the fact that my mother was Irish Catholic and my father was a wasp was problematic for everyone involved, right? <laughs> Her parents didn't like it. His parents didn't, it was, it was a fraught space. And to try to explain to young people today that that could be, that those, that, that, those sorts of like among similar looking English language speaking, but that there would be ethnic divisions between Irish and non, that all of that stuff just sounds preposterous to him. So I always take that as evidence that it's working. Yeah, now those, those were very important divisions in, in the 1950s. And certainly the religious divide between Protestants and Catholics, historically, I mean, from the very beginnings, you know, of the American Republic, those have been, that was a profound difference. Um, you know, when Al Smith ran for president in 1928 as the first uh, Catholic nominated by a major party in many parts of the United States, certainly in the South, Protestant preachers from the pulpit denounced the possibility that this, you know, this emissary of the papal state um, might become president of the United States. And a somewhat comic story is that in the South, a picture of Al Smith cutting a ribbon on a New York City subway tunnel was widely distributed with a caption that he was um, opening a tunnel to the Vatican through which the Pope could enter the United States when he was elected president. So that was an absolutely profound um, distinction that over time lost its sting. Will you indulge us and tell us just a little bit about your growing up and what your experience was like and how you came to be interested in this jazz? I grew up... Um, uh, I'm 80 years old in a couple of weeks, so I was born in 1942. I grew up in the 40s and the 50s, um, so I, I, I remember that time very well, and I sort of remember how important those differences were. I, I so so I started out in a in a mixed family, though Irish and Italian, uh, both but in on both sides, second generation, the children of immigrants. But I grew up in a part of the Bronx that was. Um, racially segregated, but um, not at all segregated um, among whites. So people who are Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, 
were mixed together. This was in a private uh, development called Parkchester, run by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. So I had friends from, you know, different religions, different different ethnic backgrounds. I went to Catholic school originally, um, but then I, w- I went to public school and I, you know, I was very quickly tracked onto the special tracks and went to the Bronx High School of Science. So um, I quickly actually became a minority. I like to think that I was helping to integrate the Bronx High School of Science back then um, in, in the 1950s. So I was very aware of uh, these differences and what they mean. But over time, they came to play less and less of a role in my own life. I you know, married somebody whose um, ancestors started coming to the United States in the 1620s from England. Yeah, I mean, so I've I've really I've experienced you know the time when this mattered a lot, and over the course of my life, it's come to matter um, less and less. But it doesn't mean that I don't think about my background, or that doesn't have any significance for me. You know, um, for example, when I was a young man, I spent some time learning Italian. I lived in Italy for a while, but I'm just really not very Italian. I mean. That's, it's let's be honest, not true, you know. And now I don't think it's. We have to be careful here because I I don't think that we can imagine that the early twenty first century is going to exactly reproduce that experience. So the experience of the post World War II period was a kind of en masse assimilation of Jews and Catholics into an American mainstream, an acceptance of Catholicism and Judaism as uh, Amer- charter religions in the United States, no longer marginalized um, religions. Um, racism is still really important in the United States. It especially impacts dark-skinned Americans, uh, particularly African-Americans, but it isn't the only story. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that assimilation is still important especially for the children and grandchildren of post-1965 immigrants. And you mentioned that you follow these matters because of politics. And I believe we can see um, the impacts of that assimilation in the political, the unexpected political changes that are taking place. So I'm sure you know that in the beginning of this century, a book appeared called The Emerging uh, Democratic Majority, um, and in that book, um, the authors, uh, Roy Teixeira and, um, and John, John Judas, John Judas, thank you, argued that, um, that the growing minority percentage of the American populace was going to create conditions very favorable for the Democratic Party, um, through the beginning decades of the 21st century. And I think, any observer of politics today in the United States can see that did not happen. And why didn't it happen? Well, one reason I believe is that assimilation has brought some members of these groups, the groups we now call people of color, in fact, into the mainstream um, where their voting is no longer determined so much by their ethno-racial background, but by other factors. They, they are politically assimilating. Yeah, they're like they're like the places where they are. I saw, uh, uh, and I will 
my my newish American Enterprise Institute colleague Rui. Uh, I will I will I will say one of the thing one of the things Rui would point out is of course the Democrats had to take advantage of the opportunities and but it was commonly understood it was commonly understood as there was a demographic wave that was going to put Democrats into permanent power so to speak. Yep. And and Obama's election was received by many in 2008 as proof of concept, right? This is going to happen. It's going to happen. The, the, we're going to a majority minority country and the whites are dying out. And this is how it's going to go. And uh, I hated that then. And it was wrong, right? It was the it was it was a it was a it was incorrect. And it was also uh, and I, I hate to use this term, but I mean it sincerely un-American, right? Uh, it, it was against the concept of Americanism. So when this Pew report came out about the 69 new counties in America that have no majority, right? There's no ethnic or racial majority. In, and it's a total of, I think, 153 counties now that don't have any. There are pluralities, but they're, it's, it's, it's every. Well, of course, some of them are very populous counties yeah. like New York County yeah. and Brooklyn and Los Angeles and yeah. Uh, but one of one of the new ones uh, is just south of Houston, uh, Brazoria, and I'm apologize, if, uh, Houstonians, if I'm saying it wrong. But it named for the Brazos River, Brazos River. So uh, and it goes south of Houston down to the Gulf of Mexico, and it's right next to Fort Bend County, and they have the same ethnic composition, roughly speaking. It is forty uh, percent or so white. Uh, about equal parts black and Asian, and then about a quarter uh, Hispanic. And demographically, they look very similar if you only look at race, but only if you only look at race. Once you peel it back one more layer and you look at educational attainment and you look at incomes, it's not a surprise that uh, Fort Bend County got more Democratic and that uh, Brazoria County stayed Republican. Because, because of college going rates and all these other things, and what it confirmed to me was what you have written about and the truth of this, which is we don't. There's nothing about being Asian if you live in a fancy suburb that makes you uh, different than the people around you. Uh, being Asian or being Hispanic or being black or being white. Uh, isn't going to be determinative of the choices that you make politically. What is is going to be your class, your neighbors, uh, the work you do, where you go to church, the people you're around all the time. Race itself isn't determined. Well, I think I'd be more cautious about that. I think for some people, race will be determinative, and I think for African Americans, the you know that that it probably is determinative in many many cases of their voting for the Democratic Party, but. You're correct in thinking that there's a sizable group for whom it's become much less determinative of political behavior. Let me also say something. The demographic data have really been misunderstood. Um, and I think that um, – and in a way, the, the misunderstanding is related to the misunderstanding in the, in the, the, you know, the, the, the emerging demo, democratic majority. And that is taking – uh, people's racial and ethnic identification on the census as indicative of the social realities that they inhabit. Um, and, and that's the mistake in the majority-minority conception altogether. Now, as you probably know, I've written about this from the point of view of what I believe is really an error in the, dem in the demographic data, namely that 
The Census Bureau, when it began to collect data about mixed race, which occurred in the 2000 census, made partly out of political and social justice concerns, the decision to classify mixed people with their minority origin, which meant that mixed people are automatically classified as non-white in much of the demographic data that are published and that we talk about. That's a huge mistake because it doesn't reflect the social realities of the lives of most mixed minority white people. Who These, these are folks who are, yeah, they grow up in families that are mixed. They have minority relatives. They have white relatives. But their lives look a lot more like the lives of whites than they do the lives of the minor, of people from the minority background in their families. So it's you know it's a it's a it's an example par excellence of how a demographic piece of information actually isn't really very aligned, at least in the way it's commonly understood, aligned with the social realities of people's lives. And that's this is where the whole majority minority idea fails because it imagines an America that is divided in two between whites and people of color. But assimilation is changing those social realities and muddling them in ways that this this conception of a divided America fails to recognize. So one of the things that drives me crazy, of course, is the concept of white Hispanic or non-white Hispanic. Is it subjective? Do I feel whiter today? <laughs> how how white do, well, do you well, feel today? Well, it is, it is subjective. I mean, let, you know, because for most Hispanics, their primary identity is Hispanic and they have difficulty answering the race question. We know, therefore, that when they say they're white, it's not entirely clear what that, what that means. I think if they say they're non-white, that's probably more clear. But, um, but in any event, the majority say they're white and we're not sure how to think about that. That's been a big complication uh, in, in the demographic data. Um, but what, and what we still can't really tell from census data is how many Hispanics are really partly white. That is to say they have a white parent, a, a non-Hispanic white parent or a non-Hispanic white grandparent. It's, it's probably a very sizable portion of, of this group. And those mixed individuals again, are very, uh, you know, tend to be very integrated into uh, social domains where there are a lot of whites. Maybe not not only whites, but a lot of whites. Right. And I, I was thinking about uh, when I read your book about the phenomenon that you could have people who were cousins, right, who shared the same ancestry, right, but one lived one place and identified themselves with their white ancestors and another – who was f- from a biological or from a from a genetic standpoint uh, the same would identify as black or could identify as Asian or could identify as Hispanic? Uh, oh no, that's absolutely true. Absolutely, yes. So these identities are not perfect reflections of genetic background, but they're also not perfect reflections of people's social lives. You know, so we have to really be careful in the way we think about them. Let me give an example. So one of the um, the big conclusions from the 2020 census is that the number of whites declined for the first time in American history. 
not so fast. Because um, in the 2020 census data, the Census Bureau has changed the counting rules and um, made aware by somebody you're talking to that there are a lot, there's a lot of mixing going on, not all of which is well reflected in census data. Um, they collected under the white and black uh, racial labels ancestry data, which we've been talking about also, and they used those ancestry data to actually modify the classifications of individuals, in particular, to take individuals. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yes, they did. It's very clearly explained in the documents that uh, that accompany the census data. So you could say, for example, that you were white non-Hispanic, and you could indicate among your ancestries. I might say, I'm Irish, Italian, and Chinese. Those are the ancestries, not the racial categories, but the ancestries. And for the first time, the Census Bureau used those ancestries to modify racial classifications. So if I said that I was Irish, Italian, and Chinese, they would say, aha, this person Secret is, Asian. is mixed. They'd say I'm mixed race. And okay, and so now I'm no longer in the white category. I'm mixed race. Um, and so, since most people who are mixed have some white ancestry, this new classification system removed people from the white category and put them in mixed categories. So, when you look at people who are only white, yes, their number went down. But when you look at people who are partly white, their number actually went up, not greatly, but it went up slightly. So the big headline is probably, we don't know definitively, but I would say it's probably wrong. It's certainly wrong in terms of its emphasis, because if there was a decline of people who would say they were only white, it wasn't, it wasn't very great. So, you know, so we have to really kind of not take the, the demographic data as the, you know, un, uh, unmistakable guide to what's going on. Well, the census, the census data, filling out the census uh, had, and I don't mean this to, I'm, I'm not making any accusations here of anybody, but there was a, um, a, Jim Crow era obsession with levels and gradients of race that was weird, that felt like it was out of touch with, I live in Washington, D.C., right? I, I live in Washington, D.C. It's a mixed, mixed, mixed kind of place, right? Washington is a very diverse city with people of every different kind of background, internationally, domestically in the United States. And it seems, and this is just my perception, there is such intense focus on biological race or this kind of stuff. It's just out of touch with the normal experiences of Americans. I took great encouragement from your book uh, and the information on intermarriage uh, and the and the data on intermarriage. What was it? One in five marriages are between two ethnic groups now? Was that, today. Was that right? Today, yes. Marriages formed today – one in five are intermarriages, and 80% of those intermarriages involve a white partner and a non-white partner. 
But I'd like to, to speak to the to the race issue, okay? Because, you know, I think there's a justification for race, for for asking about race, and it's because of our history. So, I think our history of enslavement and conquest of American Indians, conquest of Mexicans in the Southwest, means that we need those data to measure social justice concerns, to measure how far we are from a society where race doesn't matter um, at all. And I would defend absolutely collecting those data on that basis. But I think when we use those data then to um, forecast how our society is changing, we go wrong because those data are just not good enough to tell us about the mixing that's going on. The fact that you know, a lot of Latinos are maybe in largely white worlds um, or certainly largely mixed worlds. And um, so that's what we need to pay, I think, a- attention to. Let's come back to culture. We started there and I never got to finish. So, I, yeah, okay. So I think, so let's go back in, in our history of it. So an important part of the mass assimilation of the of the second half of the 20th century were the changes taking place in popular culture, as reflected, say, in television. So, um, you know, a culture that had been really dominated by a kind of white Christianity became, in the decades following World War II, much, much more diverse. There were uh, many more people of recent and visible ethnic origins like Jackie Gleason, you know, the Irish, the Irish American uh, comedian or Milton Berle, the Jewish American comedian or Perry Como, you know, the Italian American crooner. Now, these were all really important television figures in the 1950s. And so they brought into American homes a kind of diversity that people in many cases were not yet experiencing in their lives, but they showed people of different backgrounds, people who were not like them, and they made them more human, more uh, sympathetic. Bing Crosby paved the way for JFK. Right. That sort of thing. Exactly. No, exactly. And um, and so that's what I think we need to see is happening actually today, is that, um, and that's what the data that I was referring to collected by Darnell Hunt and his UCLA, UCLA colleagues show, is that there has been in 10 years, a remarkable transformation in film and television, not only in the people who are before the camera. I mean, that's really remarkable. So it, there's been a fourfold increase in 10 years of actors of color in, in major films. Um, but also in the people who are, who are directing films, who are writing the scripts, who are producing films, not quite the same transformation to parody, but we're, but really a big, big changes are taking place. They parallel, in other words, the changes that we saw in the aftermath of World War II that accompanied this mass assimilation. So I think these are signs. The popular culture is changing. Ergo, the mainstream is changing. We're much more exposed um, to, let's say, to talk about Wakanda um, than we would have been even 10 years ago. It really changes the culture. 
it changes our sense of who we are as a people. And that really affects the attitudes of many of many Americans. So uh, I can tell you a political story about immigration and assimilation. And the political story I can tell you about immigration and assimilation is that when uh, my grandfather, Stanley J. McCarthy, who signed all his letters in green ink, uh, as my father called him, a professional Irishman, it would have been unthinkable that Stanley J. McCarthy would have ever voted for a Republican, right? It would have been utter, utterly unthinkable. So for um, immigrant, immigrant families who came to the United States uh, near the turn of the 20th century, and in the and so let's say 1880s to 1930s, maybe let's say 1940. Well, there wasn't immigration in the 30s, so it's 1880 to to the middle of the tw- of the 1920s. That that's the period. These there's strong political um, uh, there was strong connection to democratic politics for these new immigrant groups uh, for a lot of reasons, um, but within two generations there is. No salience. Uh, or if you control for socio- other socioeconomic concerns about education and income, there's no being Italian or being Irish or being Polish or Croat or Slovak or Slovene or whatever has no, I can't, for my purposes, there's no, it, that's not a useful political fact for me to know whether a person's ethnicity is this or that because it doesn't affect their decision making. Uh, certainly it does, as we said, uh, as you rightly pointed out. For 85% of African-American voters, yes, and we know that story, and you told that story. That's that's true. And we know that for Jewish Americans, there's a strong, there's still a strong correlation uh, with the Democratic Party. But outside of that, there's just not much. Um, how will we, how will our kids 50 years from now look back on the, uh, dem- the massive demographic shifts of the late 20th century, early 21st century, uh, and, and these immigrants, will the same thing happen again, that uh, being an being uh, immigrant or the children of immigrants will have high political salience and it will fade, or is something else going to happen? Well, I think that um, it'll be a more mixed picture, because I don't think that assimilation today has the same sweeping magnitude that it had in the aftermath of World War II. That was a really special period in American history. Um, It was a period of very low inequality. We're in a period of very high inequality today. It was a period of massive expansion of opportunity for social mobility. My, My favorite number is that between 1940 and 1970, the number of American college students quintupled. So, there was like a massive expansion, particularly of public higher education, which gave opportunity to a much larger fraction of the college-age population than had ever been true before. And, and those kids, those young people went on to jobs that were suitable for their college education. And, you know, so that was a wholly, we can't compare today to then. So I think then there there still is plenty of assimilation. And I think the driving force today is not so much this expansion of economic opportunity as in fact, it's demographic. So, um, you know, so for example, um, as new cohorts of young people, which are very diverse, reach the age of entering the labor force, 
they find things are changing because the older cohorts that are retiring, which are baby boomers, very large, very white, um, open up opportunities. So I think there's a demographic, uh, if you will, uh, drive um, to this assimilation, but it doesn't create opportunities for mobility and uh, and entry into the mainstream on the same scale that was the case in the middle of the 20th century. It's funny. I hear I, what I hear you saying is, and I've never thought of it this way. That's brilliant. The left in America would like to recreate the advancement component of that magic moment in American history and mid 20th century American history. Uh, and the right wants the assimilation that came with it, but you don't get one without the other. You don't get rapid assimilation without with without this the rapid uplift you have the economic uplift and the assimilation live together they're not separate factors exactly and when you see assimilation on a large scale i mean in america not that many people go down <laughs> and so and so you have to have some way of creating oppor- spaces opportunities that people can move into and in the past it was massive economic expansion you know, reflecting the paramount economic position of the United States in the immediate post-World War II era. And today, it's a kind of demographic transformation, um, which sees many whites retiring, fewer, not enough whites coming up to replace them. And therefore, there are places for other people to enter. And that's happening. We see it. I mean, if you look at the top part of the American workforce, um, again, there's a transformation that's going on. So at the end of the 20th century, that top part was still dominated by whites, much less true today. So today, if you look at, let's say, the top, I, I, I keep calling it the top quarto, it means the best paid occupations that account for a quarter of the workforce. And if you look at that part of the workforce, um, it was you know 85 to 90 percent white, um, at, in the in the late part of the 20th century, and now it's down to 60% white. And so you have many more minorities and certainly mixed people who are coming up and taking those places, mixing with whites in the workplace and maybe socially and in neighborhoods. And there we are, you know, that's, this is how assimilation works. And normal And normal people just don't care about those kinds of labels in the way that some do, right? So, so the the emphasis on this, people love who they love, they marry who they marry, they work where they work, they live where they want to live. And these counties are evidence that it can work, right? It, it's evidence that that it can work and that these are, pla- that. and I think it's very interesting, one of the the differences between uh, 100, the, the, uh, the discussion about what happened at, uh, 120 years ago, 130 years ago, and what's happening now, we got the um, the melting pot, or we got these incredibly diverse cities and places uh, because of the economic need, right? Uh, that big cities filled up with people from all over the world. And your own experience growing up, what New York was like wasn't because people said, "Oh, I I want to go to New York because I hear it's diverse." They came to New York because that's where the opportunity was and that's where the jobs were. And that was that correct. Was- and immigrants, immigrants are doing the same thing today. Um, and, you know, some of many of their children, not all of them, but many of their children 
are experiencing the socioeconomic escalator that, you know, that generations of Europe, of the children of European uh, immigrants experienced. And that brings them into social milieus that are much more mixed yeah. than the ones they may have grown up in. And now it's happening in the suburbs. Instead of having to happen in a tenement uh, in Hell's Kitchen, now this is happening in in suburban counties. Uh, you know, the, the numbers on Orange County, California are amazing. When you look at the change there and all of, in Texas and in fast growing places, the diversification. And again, you're talking about these top quartile jobs of the people who can afford to live in these suburbs, who want to live in these suburbs, who are looking for the opportunities for their kids and that they live there. I think that is definitely the promise. That is the the promise of the concept. Okay. Before I let you go. But let's, I want to leave one with one thought. Uh, That's, uh, you know, I think the paradox of the current times though, is that um, unlike, let's say the resolution of the religious conflicts of the, of American society prior to 1950, we're not resolving racial conflict. You know, there's racism is still important, but at the same time, so is assimilation. And assimilation is changing mainstream America in ways that we don't yet appreciate and that it's going to make it a much more diverse mainstream in the very near future. What is the advice you give people about how to look at this? Well, okay, I think first, policy, our problems. We have horrendous economic inequality. And that's an important part of the story of low mobility for some groups because they're, they're, a lot of their members are nestled at the bottom of the income hierarchy. And we know that their chances of moving up are very small. Do something about economic inequality. And and remember that racism is not going to go extinct because of this assimilation, that we still need policies to address racism. Um, They are policies, I think, of affirmative action, especially for black Americans. And they are policies of um, mitigating the harm that the criminal justice system does to many minority Americans, especially black Americans. But don't think that because we have that much racism that assimilation, we can forget about assimilation. I think it's wrong to think about America solely in terms of racial racism and racial difference. But it's also wrong to say because we have assimilation, everybody has the same opportunities and therefore we don't have to pay attention to racism and to economic inequality. It's never one thing. It's always everything, right? It's ne- It's always everything. It's, it's always everything. And uh, the thing that I love about your work and the thing that I love about your book and the thing that I love about America most of all is America is always making itself new, right? It is always making itself new again. It's reinventing itself what it is and the things that we said that we would never be and could never be, we become. And it's a, it's a, I love, I love, I love to watch it happen. And most of all, I love to see Americans get on with happy lives and where they can and stipulating the, the, the problems that you talked about, but that that is still working and still happening for so many people and that they're doing it and not getting bogged down in stuff that is contrary to that, I think is really cool. And you, gentle listeners, thank you for indulging me in my ongoing demographic obsessions. I love this country very much. And uh, uh, part of the work that I'm really focused on these days 
is the idea that if you love America, you have to love Americans. Uh, and very often we have a funhouse mirror vision of what's really going on demographically in the United States. And I love whatever you think of uh, his policy prescriptions that Professor Alba has captured something special and important about what's going on in America and that things work differently than most people uh, tend to think. So I think that's really cool. I think it's really cool that you made a little time to listen to me while Jonah was out of town. And when he comes back, he will be there. So uh, Merry Christmas indeed to all of you and happy holidays and a happy, wonderful everything. And we'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is my podcast.